In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today on In Discussion, Buzzy Martin, was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and taught himself to play the guitar and piano. At the age of 15, he performed with his first band as the lead singer, playing guitar and keyboards. After graduating from high school, there were the traveling cover bands steadily touring the Midwest from Michigan to Florida. In 1979, he moved to Northern California, had a stint as a solo street performer at the world-famous San Francisco Fisherman's Wharf. During the journey, he became the much-in-demand host of a series of coffeehouse open mic nights, where his knowledgeable musicianship, sunny personality and non-stop encouragement helped the caffeine scene thrive. In 1980, he began to play with many local bands and musicians as a featured artist, and in the spring of the following year, he was hired as the mainstay guitar player for an Elvis Presley impersonator and became responsible for the direction and stage presence of the band. It afforded him the opportunity to travel to the West Coast Circuit, and in 1984 he started his own Top 40 style band, which quickly became recognized by club owners. An established professional who loves the music he shares, Buzzy Martin is living proof of the rewards of following one's own childhood dreams, and is now the author of Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man. The remarkable true story of the musician who set out to change lives, note by note. Buzzy Martin. Welcome to In Discussion, and I am very pleased to be joined by my special guest, Buzzy Martin. How are you today? You know, I'm humbled to be on your show. Thanks a lot, David, for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. What a wonderful life you are taking, a wonderful journey that you are taking. Your work is inspiring. I would love to start with your childhood very briefly. I know that you were born in Grand Rapids in Michigan. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, you know, uh, where I grew up, I lived two blocks from General Motors, Plant One. So I heard from the time I was 14 years old on up that that was going to be my my retirement in life, that I was going to work at the plant on the production line. And everybody around us within 30 blocks all worked at the General Motors plant. Um, I knew at an early age that I wanted to play music. My dad was a musician and my grandfather was a musician. And I was surrounded by music all my life. And so I I was touched at an early age with uh, goals and dreams, knowing that I wanted to be a full-time musician and did not want to work in the factory. And it was a wonderful place to grow up very innocent childhood and great times, great memories. That's what I recollect about growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm sure you found yourself growing up in that iconic age of Motown. Oh, Motown. Music was alive and well. Rhythm and blues and, and obviously, you know, the English coming over that you know, between 63, 65, 68. 
and then you had all the bands like Cream and and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and you know and then again with the Michigan sound of the Motown and Bob Seger and Iggy Pop and Alice Cooper it was it was great you clearly had some sort of catalyst beyond that taught yourself how to play the guitar and the piano at a very early age did that come from an influence from your parents or simply from the environment Probably both. I mean, I, I like again. I, I realized I was touched at an early age of of having this gift of, of picking up and playing pretty quickly. So, you know, my dad played guitar a little bit and played harmonica. So I I learned a little bit from him. But I was in choir and and in those days, you know, school really encouraged music and and being in band and choir and all that stuff. So I absorbed it. So at an early age, I, I absorbed everything. I was like a sponge. I loved it. It was a very exciting time for me to learn how to play music and be around it and sing. And I wasn't shy whatsoever, so I jumped right in. Influences at this point, who are the names that come to mind? Uh, well, depends on what age. Early age, when I was a little kid, obviously Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, move it back up a little bit. Obviously the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and then you get into, you know, I, I loved Alice Cooper and the whole theater rock, but then, you know, I was turned on to TV stuff too. So as a little kid from Michigan, I was watching Hullabaloo, where the action is, American Bandstand, Shindig. Those, and I know over in Europe, it was like Tops of the Pops was a big deal, but you, you see all these pop bands on TV and watching them. So I was influenced just by music. I loved all types of music, and then with my dad, he listened to Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and the Harmonic Cats, and then there was the Lawrence Welk show on TV. So, I mean, music was all around me. I, I absolutely just adored music. It didn't matter what it was. Thinking back now, resonating with the 60s as a decade, what do you think it primarily achieved in all walks of life? Well, you know, it was a, it was a time to where... You know, you could really speak your mind through music. You could really say these words that made people think. It wasn't about hate so much and destructive. It was more about learning and sharing and trying to give knowledge. Where today with rap, it's more about angry hate music. In those days, it was really trying to get this message out to people in that aspect. That's what I seen. It was a way of definitely being informative and, and very, very... Uh, um, sharing. Sharing was a big deal in the 60s as far as music went, as far as I see it. Your time at high school, was that interrupted somewhat by your love of music or did you ride through it and excel? You know, I rode through it. It was, uh, I, I had, a, once again, I had a great time in, in, all the way through school. Uh, I, I knew at an early age about playing music. So the first few times I played after the football game dances in the cafeteria, it was great. I mean, you know, I was that skinny little kid that got picked on. I didn't smoke pot. And I didn't play sports. So that put me right in the middle. So people didn't really know how to take me, but I got along with everyone. But through music, it was a universal language. And I know I could make people dance and move their souls. So, you know, playing through high school was great. I was, I've been playing music professionally since I was 15. So once again, at an early age, I was I had the gift of playing rock and roll, and it was wonderful. All the guys that wanted to pick on me became started carrying my equipment. All the girls that didn't like me, liked me. <laughs> Looking back to the 60s again, before we proceed on with your journey, we see a lot of chaos in the world today. We have the eruptions in the Middle East. We have certainly problems ahead of us worldwide. 
How do you see that the 60s acted, possibly unconsciously, as the catalyst for where we are today? It gave people knowledge. It gave people power. You know, this goes back to John Lennon. I mean, he really, you know, stood up for a lot of things. Pete Seeger was another one, too, Woody Guthrie. But, you know, John Lennon really stood up and had power to the people and give peace a chance. I think he gave people the empowerment to really go, you know, I can do this. And as I've seen in Egypt and even Libya right now, people are willing to stand up, whether it be in China, whether it be in South Africa, or in that, for that matter, in Ohio or Detroit, people finally have had enough. And, you know, what, what we've seen now is, looking back at four decades, we see, you know, power and corruption, ego, money, and we finally had enough. So I think listening to some of those songs, which none of those songs went away. If you listen to them now, young kids are still hearing them. So a lot of those songs are still right now prevalent, whether it be Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Dash & Young, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, War by Edward uh, Starr. All these songs are real prevalent. So I think a lot of it with the 60s, when they wrote these songs, they still stand the test of time and the words are still right where they are now. And people are listening and they hear that. Is that indicative of a world today where we should not underestimate the strength of the arts and music and taking us forwards? Well, absolutely. You know, doesn't music heal when you really think about it? Isn't it really soothing? Isn't it supposed to be that way? You're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to go, oh, I remember when that song came out, what I was doing. Well, you're not going to get that with gangster rap. It's, that's not, or, or the destructive kinds of music. That's not going to happen. So, yeah, you know, I think music sets the tone for anything, whether it be aggressive or very reflective. You graduated and you started to tour the Midwest, all the way down to Florida. What are your remarkable memories about that time? Just this journey of this young kid setting out to set the world on fire to play music and change their lives. It was an adventure every moment. I mean, I, I just felt like, you know, kicking my heels up and really felt that if I tried really hard and worked really hard and practiced really hard and really put my nose to the grindstone, as everybody says, instead of on the production line, doing it on a rock and roll stage, that I could achieve some kind of success, whatever success really was. And so I, I, I you know, I, every moment was great. I, I played thousands and thousands of nightclubs and bars and uh, stages where I'd be opening for people, and it was all an amazing adventure every night, and still is. If you were to, to take that journey again now, how do you think you would find a different country, a different culture, a different America? We're not as naive, you know. Obviously, through the Internet and through uh, just, you know, the way it is now. Everything is happening right now. Everybody knows immediately what's going on. And, and the knowledge is, is so much different so much uh, faster technology is so much more faster I think that's a lot of it has changed obviously when you watch things like American Idol everybody tries to be really glazed and over and very up to the second and it's not real some of the stuff really isn't real but it looks nice and candyfied but I think that's changed an awful lot so actually having really talent and going out and trying to to hawk your your wares Nowadays, it's just you can sell them over the internet and 
it's just a lot different that way. There's no doubt about it that we are, in my mind and in my work, moving into a new epoch, just as we moved from a feudal system to an industrial system three, four hundred years ago. And I suspect now that we are moving into a different world. And we don't really realize it, but we are writing the narrative and social media is supporting that. On the downside, the record industry was and is still going through a lot of pain with technology, is it not? You don't see the record stores anymore. You see kids essentially downloading from iTunes. Do you see any downside to that? Oh, all the above. Not only not only just that, but when you look at books, newspapers, whatever it may be, it's just out for free. Once it's out, it's out. And, and the social media there, too. We have a whole generation of kids that, as far as I'm concerned, but I'm an old guy at 55, it, you know, we have a socially inept generation of kids that really don't know how to have any social skills because they've never been taught or learned how to converse with people. So to see somebody on the street is alien to most of these people. You know, you know, in America, we don't build houses anymore with front porches. We just have the driveway where they just go in, go inside the house, and that's it. And they go in the backyard. Nobody socializes. So in that aspect, you know, technology has put us all in the house, in the, in the office, and there is no social skills. So, with you know, kids nowadays, they don't really know how to, to talk. We need to take responsibility for that, uh, just as the generation before us, I'm sure, have to do the same thing because we're all very much a product of conditioning. Would you agree with me that we are today suffering from those human frailties of ego, uh, addiction, codependency, uh, denial, etc., etc.? And this is where I'm seeing kids being driven inside on the premise that they're attempting to find themselves but actually insulating them from the world outside no well, absolutely you know i i don't know how you were raised as a kid but for me as a kid my dad and mom would say get out of the house and go play we don't want you in the house so we had to come up with certain things to keep our minds busy for me it was obviously music and reading i love reading uh with kids nowadays they text instead of talking instead of getting together they text each other they have their noses either in an iPod or whatever it may be. So to really go out and be creative or have some kind of goals, a lot of kids do have that entitlement if it's all about I, me, mine. And, and it's, it's our generation fault, absolutely. Society has really brought that on. I move on in your journey around 1979 and you move to Northern California. Before we talk about your stint as a solo street performer, which must have been amazing, how did you find California after moving from the East Coast? Uh, okay, well, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I was in a band, the band broke up, I got a pretty good settlement from the band, I moved back home with mom and dad and got a job making box springs and that was uh, humbling to say the least my boss's cousin was going to college at Sonoma State here in Sonoma County California Northern California and my boss said man you would love my cousin when he comes back here to hang with me for a little bit you gotta meet up and we did and he was a great guy and said you wanna go back with me in about eight weeks to Northern California and I said absolutely that was, I, you know, this is it. I'm going to be that rock star where I always wanted to be. This is my golden goose opportunity. 
And so through my boss, his cousin became my buddy, and we moved back out to Northern California. And that was my connection in 1979 to seek my fame and fortune as a big rock and roll star. Did it work out, Buzzy? I'm still seeking it. <laughs> <laughs> that time as a solo street performer, it reminds me so much when we lived in London and that we time would as travel a from acting on the outskirts so much to when central London on the We tube. lived in London there would always be solo uh, travel performers and they were wonderful people and wonderful London musicians. What did you learn from that would also period? always be solo street performers and they were wonderful people and wonderful musicians. What did you learn from that period? Oh man, I gotta tell you, being a busker, that was uh that was a uh, was a great thing. I um I came from coming from Michigan and playing Ted Nugent and Aerosmith and Kiss songs, and then coming out here and then seeing these guys on street corners playing acoustic, going, man, I could do that. So I did take three months, and it was great. It was a great opportunity to really hone my craft, to really decide if I was going to do this as a living. Because, I mean, you're throwing in with a bunch of lions, and all these guys are really good at what they do. And not only do they sing and play, but they dance and tell jokes, and very personable, and they keep, keep it going. So that three months was like going to college. And then all of a sudden, it got cold. And I didn't realize California, Northern California, got cold. So I had to make a decision. So at that point, I ended up uh, getting to, into an Elvis Presley impersonator band as their guitar player and did that for four years, which was pretty incredible, too, when you go, hey, rock and roll, baby, it's a hunger bird of love, mama. It's dawning on me, even today, there is a huge cultural difference between the east side of the country and the west side of the country. It's ever more evident. What were the differences that you saw then and that you see now between East Coast and West Coast? Oh, it's like night and day. It's like going to the moon. When you come to California, when you're from Michigan, everything's different. Food, culture, dress, attitudes, people, languages, everything. You know, nobody's from here, per se, here being California. They're from everywhere. So... Everything was a first. Food, I'd never had calamari or avocado. I'd never seen an avocado. I, I, you know, people being gay, openly gay, and wearing whatever they want to wear, which is a beautiful thing. You know, people drinking cappuccinos and smoking pot, or people playing music in the streets. That's just, an, or people, uh, black people with white people, or Chinese people with Mexican people, it was, or whatever. I mean, it was just an amazing potpourri, and still is, of people. Where, where I'm from, it's pretty much black and white, and that's it, or gray in the middle. It's, there's no in between. Nothing to say it's, you know, Michigan's a bad place, but it's just, that's where, where I'm from. It's very Dutch Christian reform, and they want to know what you're doing in your bedroom. We want you to stop it now. Do you see that in this changing world where we're definitely seeing people become much more conscious? Absolutely. As being a decadent outlook now. In my work, I'm understanding as we see the chaos in the Middle East, and we are definitely going to see it worldwide, I'm sure that it's going to impinge upon Europe as much as it will the United States, this state of consciousness. Those old paradigms of religion, politics, do you see them becoming decadent now and replaced by something else in the future? Society absolutely is decadent. We are spoiled. 
we are spoiled little brats. We're all Mr. and Mrs. Poopy Pants. You know, it, it's it's really amazing to see what goes on in life and how we treat people if they have money or don't have money. So, yeah, I, I can, you know, I can see where the fall is coming and it's coming really fast and really hard. The, the normal person has gotten really tired of having it shoved down their throats on commercials, especially on TV or the way people talk or perceive other people when, when they have that money thing come into play. And a lot of people go for the money grabs. And money is ego. Ego is power. And that's what we see with all of these world leaders. It doesn't matter if it's in America or Afghanistan or Libya or China or Egypt. It doesn't matter. So... Yeah, people I think have gotten really tired through probably the internet and through Facebook and all these social medias to where we all now know what goes on and everybody wants a little bit bigger piece of the pie. You can't have people making five bucks or six bucks an hour while the guy upstairs is making 200000 a year. Are you saying this through a political motivation or are you simply saying it as leading towards a new foundation because it appears to me that the old advocates or those who would like to set fire to cars in the streets and bring reform and especially those in the past have always themselves become part of what they were trying to replace so do you see a world for our kids now where politics does not play a part where corporations do not play a part as they have before but we come completely reconfigured redesigned through the strength of our kids yeah you know i think our kids are a lot smarter than we are because again they have the modern technology and the knowledge what we didn't have as kids so hopefully they will take that and and run with it in a, a very positive way and make good of that and 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 actually come with fruitation of of seeing these miracles of life actually come and in front of their eyes because if it's not for our kids, then it's basically hopeless. But I would, I would hope and I would pray that these guys do have enough sense to take what they've been given, have it be in the knowledge, and, and make it a better planet. Are we always going to have knuckleheads running some countries? Absolutely. But the people that are watching these guys now, hopefully we'll start putting a stop to it. But it goes back again to allowing these guys to have power. As we've seen in other countries... If the the they're being toppled because they really have no power. So I think it you know through knowledge again, not to keep on repeating the knowledge factor, but knowledge is everything. So to answer your question, yes, I would hope that the kids really do take this and run with it and make it a better planet. You enjoy an amazing journey as a musician. You work in clubs and bars and and through all of these wonderful people that you meet. And it's evident that you start turning towards a service or being in service in mentoring children. Looking back now, when did that start resonating in your life? When did that become apparent? Well, probably, I mean, if I really had to put a date on it, probably, uh, I would say in the fall of 1993, I was doing open mics. And an open mic is where you come in, you can do tell jokes or play music or dance or sing or whatever. And uh, a bunch of these boys had come in and they had blue pants on and white t-shirts. And I thought that was pretty interesting, about eight of them. And I asked them what they were doing and they said they were group home kids and they were here with staff. And I had no idea what a group home was or a latchkey kid or an at-risk youth. And so after talking to the staff, 
I said, could I come over and sing for these guys? And so they said yes. And right about that time is when I wrote a song for Polly Class that had been kidnapped and eventually found murdered. And that's when this whole thing of kids started really coming into play because I just felt that some of these kids just needed to be a kid. I was just given that gift of being a kid, and I wanted to give that back. So that 1993 was when I got touched. How do the children react to the method that you apply here? You're clearly using music as a major driving force. But what else do you apply? Do you use a compassion in eradicating old age ego the dreadful condition that we have had on those issues that we've talked about so far in the image of money the icon of money how do you do that what is your method as you forge these relationships well you know these kids that i work with are, are basically broken souls they, these guys are what you know society deems as throwaway kids and so you know they've all been damaged physically sexually mentally abused all the above so not one is the same. I sing to them. I sing with them. I try to get them to be not so shy and come out a little bit. If it's with a group, then I try to get them all to sing songs they know, whether it be Stand By Me or, or My Girl. Um, if I go to a juvenile hall, then what I try to do is, is bring like a, a, a conga drum or a bongo drum and get them to hit the drum a little bit. I just try to get them to understand the words of honor and respect and being humble, love, hope. Truth, you know, kindness, you can do it, goals and dreams, and make them understand that I had all those, and now what I've accomplished in my life, you can do that too. But I also give them the love and understanding that we all believe in them, not everybody dislikes them or wants to beat them up. So, again, the, the kids that I work with have, have all been come from a whole other background, and now at risk could be a gay kid a skinny kid, a fat kid, a kid in a wheelchair. But, you know, generally I just try to teach them how to sing or sing or never prejudge them, ever. It's becoming apparent as we move into this higher sense of consciousness that we, all of us, are the universe. We are all part of the universe. We are all part of this oneness. It's also becoming evident covering a lot of communities around the world, whether they're communities in California or Ecuador or Africa that are bringing people together and they're engaging in permaculture or whatever it is, community building. How big a part of your mandate is that with these kids, that they need to be part of community, they need to stay with each other, they need to understand that they're looking in the mirror when they play and plan and strategize and work with each other. How do you accomplish that and how do they respond to it? Well, great question. Uh, first of all, it's 100%. How I accomplish that is I just try to make, again, make these guys understand that at, le at least in my world, nobody that I know is going to bump it with another man, which means I'm not going to take my shoulder and ram into a guy. None of us have what they would call the monkey walk or the gangster walk, which you walk from side to side and have your pants hanging down. None of us, you know, use derogatory words towards our wives or our brides, if we have any sense at all. You know, some guys don't, but for the most part, we try to be very respectful. You know, we, there's a lot of things that we don't do in their culture, and I try to bring that to these kids to make them understand that we don't do that and give them another side of life. 
most of the kids that I work with have, have never even seen a redwood tree nor a, a, the ocean. So everything is foreign to them. So when you give them that gift and knowledge, then you make them think, and they go, hmm, maybe I can achieve that too. And that's when you say, yes, you can. You can do or be anyone that you want. I am that person. That's part, pretty powerful when you meet people that are actually doing something. That's scary, and that's powerful. I think as with this program recently described as not a journalist, and I do not wish to be a journalist in this new media, but simply providing education and inspiration, which is clearly what you're doing. The juvenile system, what is the status of that? Are there difficulties with that system that you have to work with on a daily basis? Well, yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, it's funny you just said education, inspiration. I, I always say education, not incarceration. And unfortunately, it's a business. Our incarceration is a huge business. In, in, a, in the world, we talk about prisons. We talk about jails. We never talk about juvenile halls or how these kids grew up to become mean men or women and they're incarcerated. So yeah, it's the best well-kept secret ever, and it is a business. It is alive and well, and now we have privatized prisons and juvenile halls. So David, if you and I want to go into business, we could actually buy, build, and operate a private juvenile hall and prison, which means our inmates will never leave. Is that not a very, very dangerous platform that has been built that it becomes private and therefore lacks the transparency that a public institution would have? Absolutely, but even the public institutions are pretty uh, closed. Not a lot of people get in. I was a juvenile justice commissioner for two years, so I got a chance to visit a lot of juvenile halls and see what really goes on, plus playing music on a couple of juvenile halls. It's... Uh, it's not good. It could be a lot better, just like the governments. But what, what we don't see and what we don't know is these hidden little secrets, and, and that's where it is. So, I, yeah, I think it could be a lot better. And, be, you know, we have to be able to treat these kids like kids when we have them. So I think they need to be uneducated and untaught because they're taught and, and really educated in a whole other lifestyle so it's our job to retrain or in this case unteach or unlearn back in the united kingdom of course before we do move on the retirement homes is a constant source of concern misuse badly run private organizations and i suspect that it is the same for the juvenile justice system is it a system that you generally come away with a very bad feeling or are you confident that it is a system that can be repaired or upgraded or have some sort of further inspiration that could be led by the very kids that you're spending time with now? Well, I'm going to say the, the, the later. Absolutely. I think that it could be improved. I think it needs to be improved. And I think the same thing as elder abuse. That's a huge deal around the world. And I think both of these could be really addressed and, and shine a light on that really need to be addressed. And I think they can really be improved in the fact that if you, if you really take a look at how we spend our money and what it's spent on and what it's done, neither programs are working. I'm talking both the elders and the juvenile halls. It definitely should be taken a look at and, and brought up to a, a lot of different factors. We, you know, we, we don't take the time with the kids to teach them again or, or love them or show them the, the, the opportunities of life. We're too busy just warehousing these kids, 
knowing that they're going to make money for the system. We want them to fail as far as society, because if you build juvenile halls and county jails and prisons, you've got to fill them up. Now, with the retirement communities, you know, I find that a lot of people have no honor or work ethics. And if you're getting paid to do a job, do a job and do it good as the best that you know how to do in your ability. And don't take the money grab. But most people go for the money grab, which we were talking before, David. It's the whole ego power thing. Well, I'm sure that that applies to so many things in life today that power, uh, as with the oil companies, power is on the basis of money. While those paradigms reside, uh, uh, the, the general populace really don't have a chance of being able to change things. But I suspect that around the corner here, things are going to change. Uh, in, in that arena, fossil fuels are clearly destroying the world. And by pure default at this stage, all of that is bound to change with new energy. And with children, and I look at children now today, especially the 80s generation, that they are very much caught up in a system where oil and fossil fuels and the dreadful power energies that we have today are affecting health they are the engine behind the pharmaceutical industry they are the engine behind geo-modified crops and all of these are not helping children but i do believe with what i'm seeing with communities and projects that are being created around the world in places like haiti and africa that funnily enough many of them are being led by young people that i call the 80s generation so i think that they are beginning to understand what we have grown up with how we were conditioned and i think they're the very ones that if we can lead by example then they can win through in the future you know what exactly right and, and where I live at in Sonoma County, I live in a little place called West Sonoma County or Sebastopol. A lot of the kids are totally hip to that where it's like really fresh gardening. Everything's environmentally very correct. And, um, yeah, you know, on the 80s generation, if we can have these kids do that because they're the ones that were right there and, and changing of the guard probably from the 60s, no question. So I, I agree with you a thousand percent on that one. Great question and even better answer. <laughs> oh, I'm pleased to entertain you. <laughs> we move on to your wonderful book, Don't Shoot, I'm the Guitar Man. What I'd like to do for our audience is for you to kindly define, first of all, how that came about. Well, I've been working at juvenile halls now for 17 years, and I had an opportunity to go to San Quentin State Prison for 12 weeks and teach some inmates how to play music. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not even the least bit interested of ever going to a state prison. And so my friend said, well, why don't you just talk to my friend that works there and just see if you want to get a feel for it and, and just check it out. So, so I did. I went down and had a little meeting with this woman and we talked about it. And I met with my wife and explained all the rules and regulations and so I decided to take on a 12-week program at San Quentin State Prison. So I had to go and do five days of orientations of what not to say and what not to do. Because that's like going to a foreign land or going to the moon. And so I went and did this 12-week program and thinking I would be able to get a song out of it. Possibly because I was working with all these kids as young as eight years old that want to go to prison. And I thought I could come back with some information. 
Well, lo and behold, I was in San Quentin prison for 30 seconds and a thousand songs went by. And three and a half years later, I uh, decided to write a book. I was interested. Jeff Weaver, the chief of police, and he quoted on the book, my two trips to San Quentin's state prison for parole hearings did not allow me to obtain nearly the depth of knowledge your repeated trips inside the facility offered you. It did, however, provide me enough information to know that your book reveals the truth about life inside. Your stark description of prison life and the impact on prisoners' lives is chilling in its honesty. The prisoners... How did you find them in this time? Did you have to bend the rules after this orientation? Are they as bad as the system makes them out to be? No, not at all. No, you know, I, I, I walked away after three and a half years with, with a lot of emotions. But the very first thing is they're just abused kids that grew up and they're unsure of themselves. Most of these guys have never heard, I love you. You've done a great job. I'm proud of you. How you doing? They've never heard any of these words. And so for me to go in and not have one ounce of prejudice or trying to profile these guys or anything, I found it delightful because I didn't go in there with any preconceptions of what these guys were about. So for me, it was very childlike. They would come into the room with shaved heads and tattoos and broken teeth and their fingers like yellow because they'd spent smoking cheap cigarettes and really big and burly. And they'd have that swagger when they come in. And as they walked through the door, they all dropped and the swagger went away. And they became these little eight to 10 year old kids. And it was a miracle. So I, you know, I was never felt threatened or anything whatsoever. Once I was in the room, outside of the room, David, it's a whole other deal. But inside the room with the guys, it was it was a miracle. In my programming, Buzzy, from the very first day that I started this on November the 30th, 2009, I always started every guest by taking them back to their childhood. And one of my first guests was the wonderful Sir Michael York, the film actor, who actually at the end was quite mystified and said, uh, I, I talked about things and recognized things in my childhood that until now I had not realized how deeply effective they had been on my life. And it seems to me that in our world today that we are all in pain we're all going through a pain as we enter this new epoch i think that's part of the course you can see it everywhere and what i am so inspired by with your work is that you are having an effect on the source if we can teach these children now to as you say learn to love learn compassion learn to eradicate ego and build community, half the battle has to be won because then they don't drag anything into their mature lives. Because there's no doubt about it in my mind, uh, maybe you, you will concur, that our whole lives are driven and designed by those childhood experiences. No question. Good or bad, huh? doesn't matter what it is. If it's good or bad, if it's good, I, I, you know, I, I didn't realize that I was poor growing up. I didn't realize it until a couple of years ago, until one of my fellow classmates explained to me that we were all poor. You know, then it's like, well, where did we get our clothes? Well, I got them at, you know, the Salvation Army. I got them at Goodwill. 
So in that as aspect, it was uh, you know a lot different. Um, you know, and, and as a bad goes the same way. That's why when you're at an early age, and I've worked with a lot of kids that have been abused. What happens is when you're abused at an early age, you take that all the way through your adulthood. You never forget that. And same as if you've been really, really treated well, same kind of deal. You'll never forget that either. And you'll bring that along and be a good parent. The time that you reached writing about this and creating a book, what was the catalyst for that? You obviously had to spend time digesting the experiences, taking the journey, figuring out in your own self your outlook, your passion, your objectives. What did it take to finally put pen to paper? I was smart enough in the very beginning to go buy a handheld cassette tape player because I just felt that this was going to be an opportunity that I'm never, ever going to get again. It wasn't my intention to write a book or, or anything. It was just my intention to just capture all of these stories that I was about ready to incur on. So I, from day one, I just kept an audio log of everything that happened. And after three and a half years and seven 90-minute cassette tapes, I sat down and I transcribed on paper because at that very second, I really didn't know how to use a computer. So I wrote every word from the tape on paper. And that took me a while. And then... What happened at that point, one of my guitar students' mothers put it on computer for me, and then I got a chance to start reading it, and then I didn't realize at that point, it was like, I think I got a book here. And so I started just reading it and re-editing and reading and re-editing, and I did that for six years until we put the book out ourselves. My wife and I self-published it in, in 07. And it's now found itself to become a major feature film. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that's a that's another great question. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go back and say it to you, David. I'm smiling right now. We don't see each other, but it's like, so who's gonna play you in your movie? And then you go, ah, <laughs> and then you go. That's kind of a interesting question, and that's what we're going through. It's uh, it's humbling. We're honored. My heart my heart melts and and is moved and cries in happiness every moment. Um, it's a lot of emotions. I I I guess I can't stress enough. I didn't set out to do this and have my book on, you know, Penguin Berkeley Books and have it available in 40 countries and have a movie and stuff. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, it really is humbling that this happened. I, 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 I'm, it's undescribable. It's like winning the lottery a thousand times. When will the film be completed? Uh, the film's going to come out uh, sometime in the spring. They, uh, it's, uh, they're going to go into filming between April and May. And then hopefully uh, everybody's going to see it the first of the year. And the cast uh, that have been selected? Uh, I can tell you that Eric Roberts is going to play the role of myself, and they're still casting for a couple other parts. Uh, if you go to Prodigy Motion Pictures or some of the other actors that are up there, um, but, but Eric Roberts has taken the role of myself, which is pretty humbling to have somebody play me. I'm sure that the combination of the book and the film will take your journey to the next level it will give you uh, greater strength and power in what you are achieving with the kids how do you foresee that playing out after the film particularly has come out how do you see yourself changing you know i've been saying now for a while here's what i would like to really have happen 
My goal, wish, and dream, and hope is to have one million people reading my book around the world. If that happens, what I can do is I can go to all the juvenile halls in the country at no cost to anyone, teach kids how to play, and donate 20 books to each juvenile hall library. Because I know that nobody's going to ever have me do this. Because these kids are just money to the system. That would be what I would love to have happen, where I can go to all the juvenile halls, explain my incredible story, and say that this little blue-collar kid from Grand Rapids, Michigan, did it. He did it. I had a chance to do it. I took every opportunity and worked really, really hard, and you can do it, too. And at the end of the day, nobody has to pay me anything except for buying the book and getting the message out. That's, that's my ultimate goal. Because I think every kid deserves to be a kid and have that hope and love in their heart. And a lot of these kids don't. It's the silent screams that we don't hear. And I want to be the voice now that I can go talk to these kids. So that's my goal. I made a comment in a interview the other day. And I said that those who do not have voices are unknowingly the slaves to the system. And that is what we try to accomplish here is in the long term giving everybody voices because as soon as people have voices they have greater strength and they can contribute to society as a whole. The work that you are doing suddenly resonates with the work that is occurring here at In Discussion and I praise you for it. Looking back over your life, what are the greatest memories you believe served you so well in this journey? and that assured that you have reached this point today? Wow. This is an interesting question, I, and I can come up with it right away, and I don't know if you'll laugh or not. Uh, being in the Boy Scouts, believe it or not, you know, that was everything to me. I mean, that, that taught me a lot of things that I probably normally wouldn't have happened. It taught me how to get along with people. It taught me, you know, how to be prepared in situations, you know, you know, between music and the Boy Scouts, I mean, it really, now you're from initially the UK, is that right? I grew up for 20 years of my life running every single day through the wheat fields around Stonehenge. Oh God, that's beautiful. That would be nice too. Um, yeah, over here, it was, you know, for me to be, you know, in a suburban environment and being a Boy Scout, they taught us an awful lot about camping and hiking and fishing and you know, all that stuff. But it was just really learning to be around people and being kind and and generous and being honest and having that you, your word will be good. If I give you a handshake, you can count on me. And I learned all those through being a blue-collar kid going into Boy Scouts. That's my earliest recollection, how I feel is how I turned out now. I knew enough as a little kid when my dad, I see my dad shake somebody's hand, that was good as gold. It's definitely uh, indicative of a world now that needs to take all of us, including the children, back to the land, back to the vibrations of Mother Earth, understand again just how close we should be to Mother Earth and start protecting her rather than destroying her. And I'm sure that it's going to be the kids that you are spending so much time with that will learn that if not already. My question there would be is how can you assure that these kids in these juvenile institutions can have that hope and that opportunity to be able to breathe the fresh air and stand on the coastline? Well, I don't think we should ever give up on any of these kids because when you really look at some of the kids that were at risk, including 
John Lennon was at risk. And look at what they produced. On this side of the ocean, it was James Brown or any of the Motown artists were all at-risk kids. They were all ghetto kids. Every kid deserves to have a chance to be not only a child, but a person. Because we don't know who can come out of this. And my feeling is we have to allow this. We, you know, These kids that we have incarcerated are going to become adults. If we don't invest into these kids now, we're going to later on. And we just got to allow everybody to have that chance to grow and flourish as a human being. I think we all deserve that. And that's why, again, giving kids voices, giving adults voices to express what we're trying to do. And that's all that David, yourself, and Meyer have ever tried to do is obviously give kids that voice and speak up. And, and instead of screaming and, and crying, laugh and rejoice at the fact that we are going to give these guys a shot. So it's up to us to do it and give these guys a voice. Bazzi Martin, it has been a great privilege spending this time with you today. I wish you so much luck, and I'm sure that in discussion can act as an anchor for both of your, your book and your film in the future. We'll surely be pleased to do anything we can. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Again, I'm humbled and honored to be on your show, and, and I can't thank you enough, my friend. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program. You can find information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dot com.